Welcome to the Counselors of Real Estate Top 10 in 20 podcast series. In these 20-minute episodes, we'll discuss one of the prevailing top 10 issues affecting real estate. I'm Deborah Cloutier, President and Founder of Retech Advisors in Falls Church, Virginia, and Chair of the Counselors of Real Estate's External Affairs Committee that develops the annual Top 10 list. Counselors of Real Estate are trusted advisors solving the world's most complex real estate challenges. Experienced, innovative, and credentialed problem solvers, counselors practice in 20 countries and offer expertise in more than 50 real estate disciplines across all asset classes. Each has earned the prestigious CRE designation. Our guest for this episode is Michelle Coulard, our current Global Chair of the Counselors of Real Estate and President and CEO of Boussac Real Estate in Montreal. Michelle is responsible for property investments, development strategies, and the financing of growth of the Boussac real estate portfolio, both in Canada and in the Northeast and Southeast of the U.S. He's the second Canadian to serve as chair of the counselors since the organization was established in 1953. Today, Michelle will share his thoughts on infrastructure, which is the number nine issue on this year's compilation of the top 10 issues affecting real estate. And as a reminder, COVID-19 was our number one issue and resonates throughout each of the other nine. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you, Deb. Thank you. Glad to be here. Lovely to have you. So the infrastructure issue is such a broad and complex topic. It's been estimated that there is over a trillion dollar gap globally on investment needed uh, just by 2040. And when we talk about infrastructure, it it really is such a diverse group of areas, you know, ranging from energy, surface transportation, ports, water delivery systems. Can you give us a little bit of insight on how will this funding deficit affect real estate values and development patterns? Uh, Yeah, and Deb, this gap uh, is only about the existing and the ongoing infrastructure under investment or the investment deficit that we call. And to begin, uh, just a few words on that $15 trillion gap. This is a global global gap, and the U.S. is responsible for 3.8 trillion out of that 15, which basically represents 25 percent, which is uh, by far the most of all the other G20 countries. Proportionally speaking, we're drastically behind in our investments. So infrastructure is really uh, is vital to our quality of life our economic activities and social development. It's, it's really the basic of physical and, and social systems that support subsistence and growth of global economies and, and population. At the most basic human level, people need access to clean, safe water for drinking and cooling and cooking. I mean, uh, power for lighting, uh, heating their homes and roads and railways allowing people to move and get to places, eventually stores and restaurants and events to get to work and provide for their families. Uh, and these transport infrastructure as well as seaports and airports allow firms to reach markets for their goods and services. Uh, it's, you know, from the from the global infrastructure hub, which actually characterize all infrastructure, the ongoing infrastructure and the existing infrastructure, they're divided in eight big sections. Electricity and energy and roadways, bridges, tunnels, and commuterways represents 80 to 90%, roughly 85% of this 3.8 trillion. 
So that's where a lot of um, the deficit really happens. The other uh, six components are really telecommunication, rails, water, clean supply and sanitation, waste management, recycling, ports and airports, uh, and in part cultural and sport venues and public places. And again, this is our only our existing infrastructure. Further to upgrading uh, our existing infrastructure, we also need to address the extreme infrastructure need dealing with major disruptors, uh, including major health issues, just like we're going through now with COVID and others to come, uh, extreme weather and related disasters, cyber attacks, civil unrest and, and, and terrorism, uh, and address as well social infrastructure needs, uh, dealing with governmental and agency buildings, uh, civic centers, uh, social and affordable housing, education and medical facilities and accessibilities. Um, and finally, we're not even addressing the future infrastructure needs for innovative cities of tomorrow. And, and, and we need to be proactive on this. Uh, so again, electrification of transport, uh, network for commuting, uh, public transport automated uh, vehicles, innovative uh, logistic, the last mile delivery systems. We all know where that's going and that's gonna come more and more important. Uh, we've gotta be really proactive there. Uh, zero and low carbon emission and trans, uh, transition of renewable energy, that's another one. Uh, urgent upgrade of network connectivity, data capacity and, and telecommunication. We all talk of 5Gs, but we have more AI application coming up. Um, Etc. waste management, innovative recycling solutions. So we urgently need to be proactive in improving our communities and society for the future. So this critical investment deficit will express itself in inadequate operations and upkeep of existing infrastructure. And that's only again, the existing and the ongoing one, uh, which is and will continue to reduce quality of life, economic development and sustainability. Uh, future resiliency of our basic system, and of course, real estate values, putting the stability of our general well-being at risk and highly vulnerable. So yes, that if we are not providing basic, uh, safe, innovative, and efficient infrastructure to our lives, and especially if we don't take a proactive position to address these issues, development patterns and real estate values that directly and directly uh, depend on such infrastructure projects will be negatively impacted and will become less viable. And it's already happening in certain sectors and areas of metro and metros. Right, and I, I think the way that you're characterizing this also helps bring into focus just how interconnected this year's top 10 issues lists are, right? Mm -hmm. Your infrastructure topic touched to technology and sort of the rush toward trying to upgrade our building systems so that you know we're avoiding obsolescence the flow of people and just where they're located and how they're trying to move to and from jobs and play and their lifestyles right each of these as well as the capital market so that kind of turns us to what i think is at the heart of this infrastructure deficit is really funding and how do we put the pieces together for such large-scale, complex, multifaceted projects to sort of get off the ground, both, as you said, the deficit we have as well as the investment in the future? 
Do you see any viable short and long-term solutions on how to put this package together? A lot of folks talk about the public-private partnership as being one of the viable solutions. What do you think? I, I think the, the P3s or the, the public-private partnerships are very important, both in the short and long-term solutions. They're not the, the only solutions, but definitely very important. Uh, Private-public partnerships, actually, the PP process itself uh, is, lends itself more uh, for larger infrastructure projects. I mean, they're a major process uh, to, to get going, and they need a lot of uh, preparation to get to, the, to, the, to launch this process. And usually you get involved with uh, projects of between minimum 80 to 100 million and more. Uh, and usually uh, they're focused on new infrastructure equipments or buildings or, or, or uh, roads or highways, bridges. They're usually on new infrastructure projects. Smaller infrastru infrastructure projects and upgrade uh, will be through direct contracting process or traditional procurement methods such as design build or design build with operation. Um, but as we know, keeping pace with uh, infrastructure needs remain essential uh, to sustaining economic growth and our social well-being. And it's key to the current recovery we're going, to, we're going through now, whether through uh, new investments upgrading and, or, or upgrading existing ones. Uh, and yes, states and municipalities are cash strapped right, right now and very limited in their funding capacities. And now more than ever, uh, they're prioritizing their bond capacity to focus on critical urgent projects right now. But, the proper, but with a proper PPP arrangement and some, or some hybrid structure, the financing task can be passed on to the private sector, the private party with uh, proper risk transfer. And that's very important. We'll get to that in a minute. And that way, the public party only focuses on the execution of the private by the private party and the capability of fronting the availability payments and not requiring the capital itself. Uh, and the uh, availability payments of the payment coming from the, 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 the public sector uh, can also be diminished by either a user payment or user uh, payer that would use the, the infrastructure itself, like a toll road. Um, if that's the case, or it could be partially offset by other performing assets or land assets to be developed in, in part of the equation. So it's very creative in terms of, of, uh, of, um, of a process, of a method, but it needs a lot of um, uh, defining in the beginning and a lot of, of uh, positioning your actual project beforehand uh, and getting into this process with the private sector. And that's, that's often the case where we have some problems with the public sector when it comes to uh, the time to operate a, a PPP. So uh, again, the PPP is a form of cooperation between the public and private sector. Uh, there are powerful procurements and investment tools and must be an essential option to any domestic infrastructure plan. There's no question. Objectives are very different, however. The public, for the public, it's about delivering service. For the private, it's all about returns on the investments, at least the, the, the main objectives. But the important 
of the proper PPP deal structure and agreements assure that both parties' interests are aligned. And that's where the agreements and the structure of the, the actual PPP is important. Too often the objectives uh, and all the financial options and the preliminary deal structure are not well-defined and not thought, thought out uh, completely on the onset of the PPP process, leaving the door open to weaker agreements and exposing the public procurement party to mistakes and disasters and even public criticism. And that's been a lot in the past. So it's important to, to understand how that is, is structured and uh, to understand how we initiate a, a, a true PPP. Um, so obviously a PPP is a long-term concession. Sometimes it goes from 25 to 40 years uh, uh, long in terms. Uh, it's for the development, uh, design, build, and financing, and operating and maintaining of an infrastructure, of an asset, uh, or a public asset in which the private sector bears significant execution risk. So a lot of the risk transfers have to be passed to the private sector and uh, management and operation of, uh, responsibilities as well throughout the life of the contract, but also the life cycle and the maintenance of the asset or the infrastructure itself. And finally, it also provides more important, the, the financing, uh, the equity of the, uh, the private developer, but also the project financing, usually on the bond capital market. And usually on the counterpart, it requires that ability payment from the public party or the user payment uh, linked to performance uh, for the use of the asset or the infrastructure or the service has to align obviously the interests of both parties. So, but as we mentioned uh, before, the, the P3 is not the only solution and the US must alter its method uh, to address its needs. The main problem here is that infrastructure is a resource inefficient uh, in the US, it's, it's, it's um, and it sometimes is in Canada for sure, projects are poorly managed with no centralized authority uh, per se, which causes costs to increase. Uh, despite being the world's leader in innovation, the US has uh, not been able to merge uh, its technology cap capability with traditional infrastructure practice. And looking at longer term, federal we all agree that federal should increase its overall infrastructure budget too low right now at less than 2% of the GDP. Uh, that's very low comparing again to other G20 uh, GDP, uh, in comparison with the G20 uh, GDPs. If we compare other G20 countries, US is a strong performer in terms of rule of law and taxation policies and ability to provide construction permits efficiently and so on, but it falls short when it comes to planning, procurement, and contract management, and too often being the cause for disaster and failure. So we need uh, really a, a new rationale to, uh, to attract private funding to join the depleted public funding right now, and that can be improved by a central infrastructure agency uh, that would be creating uh, federal guidelines and for procurements and, uh, and also for PPPs. Uh, and second, dedicating infrastructure units or bodies to support state and local governments and public agency like ports and airports authorities and transport authorities and uh, universities. And, and, uh, and secondly, planning execution 
become more selective, data-driven, equitable, and cooperative between federal, state, and local governments to best prioritize the projects and their respective funding. Also, decision-making is important. Decision-making and delivery system must overcome the lack of centralized authority and, and political pressures and inefficiency in the, in the processes. And finally, emphasis should be used on contact or construction technology or, or, or innovation on in, in the construction field in design, implementation, construction, and operation method are necessary to achieve greater skill uh, in productivity from, the, uh, from the, in, the infrastructure investment. I guess lastly, I would say it would be nice also to have a, some type of a transparent and publicly available post-completion review of infrastructure project that checks not only cost and schedule, but benefit realization that would lead to a long-term improvement of delivering quality projects in public confidence. So I think, uh, I think that's, you know, that's where we need to work at to really get uh, going with, if we're serious to, to use the public-private partnership uh, principles and, and process, I think these, uh, these tools have to be put in place, definitely. Well, it's, it's no, uh, that's a very tall order that you just laid out in terms of the things that need to happen for it to be a smoother, more consistent and really just expansive investment and, and really having folks like counselors of real estate and other subject matter experts at each step of the way, whether it's setting up the contract and the relationships, the administration, as you said, and I really like this idea of sort of the lessons learned continuous improvement feedback loop that would just help strengthen um, these approaches and, and, and allow folks to innovate, learn, and then adjust um, to really put it into practice. But that it's, it's not surprising um, that we have such a large deficit at this point, but I think you're right. If we're going to get serious about it, we have to take a very different approach moving forward. And it, one thing I'd love to touch on next is sort of this broad speculation that exists that you know, there are fears of, of, of the movement of people, right? The, what's resulting from the pandemic? Um, there's speculation whether or not that's going to lead to more of a decentralized approach, sort of the urban flight um, or de-densification of, of urban areas, populated areas into more suburban or ex-urban lifestyles. Um, what are your thoughts on how municipalities can address what, would likely be further stresses on both existing infrastructure systems, but particularly if we start moving out into undeveloped greenfield sites that are going to require more infrastructure. What are your thoughts on, on how do municipality, local municipalities sort of address this you know, potential issue? Yeah. As mentioned before, Deb, the municipalities and local governments are, are cash-trapped right now. And they prioritize their bond capacity to address core issues closest to their to the voters' heart, I guess, and police force and fire and life safety issues, some road work and filling potholes, among other issues. However, one asset that many local municipalities and uh, and civic organizations have in relative abundance is really is land and and, and well-located land. Um, high-valued land, 
and land assets can be leveraged to offset the cost of developing and, re and revitalizing the public facilities and infrastructure through tailored PPP delivering agree delivery agreements. Again, um, bringing a real estate element to a major municipal infrastructure project not only creates a funding source to offset project costs, but also can redevelop and revitalize the surrounding neighborhood. And this means additional benefit in terms of tax revenue and increased property values. As another example, just consider transit because things will come back eventually and significant value can be created by considering project linking transportation, real estate and land use. Transit has always shown to add values to land and equally the right land development can help drive value for funding that transit and other infrastructure facilities. The value of passenger rail bringing a station, some essential retail service uh, and housing together can exceed the sum of all parts. So great, great, no, agreed. Well, the American Society of Civil Engineers has rated the US infrastructure a solid D plus. What grade would you give Canada's infrastructure systems? <laughs> well, Canada is a little, uh, I mean, you have to understand, Canada is, uh, in terms of geography, um, you're talking about the second largest landmass in the world, but it's not even the size of the uh, population of California. So, you know, we're 35, 36 million. So it's a huge, huge uh, territory to cover. Uh, some infrastructure cover from coast to coast, but um, there's a lot of empty space between cities sometimes. Um, I would say probably C or C plus. Uh, it's still not enough. There's still not enough investment in the case of Canada. But Canada has centralized, has, uh, centralized authority bodies like we were talking before for supporting infrastructure project planning and PPP processes, both at the federal and the provincial levels, which help the processes and even uh, some port airports and, and transport authorities uh, colleges, universities, medical facilities have their own bodies of expertise. Uh, and um, that expertise also flows easily between uh, the, the, the need for procurement from that public body or that authority or, or, or that uh, the, the, the need for, for that infrastructure where it comes from. And uh, in Canada, PPPs uh, and infrastructure projects, uh, I would say hybrid PPPs have been around for over 20 years and a lot of expertise and experiences came from the UK and other European countries. Uh, and so we've set, set up those, those, um, those centralized bodies for a while. That, that probably helped. And so over time, our scorecard, I guess, it eventually gets a little bit better. But if you focus on the two main sectors, um, uh, you know, that I mentioned before, uh, so the electrical grid, the electricity, electrical grid and distribution uh, is, is relatively quite good in Canada. Our grid is solid and, uh, and there's a lot of energy that comes from hydro energy, as you know. Uh, right. And uh, it's, it's been done a lot now where, where a lot is being done on solar energy and storage uh, technology uh, for, from 
for, uh, for electricity and also on the electrification efforts for the, trend, for the upcoming uh, new transits. So there's a lot of work that's being done and projects being announced even today. Uh, but if you look at the other, the other uh, component, the roadways and bridges and tunnels, uh, there's so much to be done in Canada on that, uh, on, on that, uh, that item. Um, and it, there's a lot of catching up. So I think it's pretty much the same in the sense that we need to concentrate where the priorities are, and, uh, but we definitely need to invest more, um, well, in terms of a percent of our GDP, but we need to invest more in our infrastructure. There's no question about it. Well, I think also if you look at it on a global scale, the um, investment that has been outpacing others is in renewable energy and large-scale energy infrastructure across the globe. So, Well, thank you, Michelle. We are so grateful for your insight on infrastructure and the role of the public-private partnerships in addressing these pervasive issues. So thank you very much. Join us next time for another discussion of one of the top 10 issues affecting real estate. I'm Deborah Cloutier. On behalf of the Counselors of Real Estate, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Top 10 in 20. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, everyone.